Golf. The man who is often thinking that it is better to be somewhere else than where he is, excommunicates himself. If a man is rich and strong anywhere, it must be on his native soil. Here I have been these forty years, learning the languages of these fields, that I may the better express myself. Henry David Thoreau This was a landmark day of the year, my first bike ride without wearing gloves. I woke to a softer, earlier, warmer sunrise and cycled out to a grid square that began on an overgrown heath of bracken, gorse and heather. It needed an hour or two to control it. I continued into a wood whose highest branches swayed in the stiff breeze. I lay on my back and watched the twigs rattling against each other like squabbling fingers, snapping and cracking. There was a slight gap between each tree crown, like a mosaic. This crown shyness is caused by the reciprocal pruning I was watching, and it helps trees to remain healthy and share resources. The spacing improves each tree's access to light and can deter the spread of diseases, parasitic vines and leaf-eating insects. A jay screeched as I looked at some oak galls growing on a young tree. You often spot jays near oak trees and their relationship is an example of symbiosis where both species benefit from the relationship. A jay can gather 5,000 acorns in its life and though they are its primary food source, the bird also helps the oak to pioneer new ground by burying the acorns in open spaces. This habit helped oaks spread across Britain after the last ice age 10,000 years ago. Acorns can germinate in woodland, but they're often outcompeted by faster growing species. By burying acorns over large areas, jays help oaks to grow in less competitive scrub. By the time the bird returns to eat its acorn, a seedling has often sprouted. The jay pulls it up, scoffs the acorn, and then, for some reason, jabs the seedling back into the ground. The tiny tree tolerates this brief uprooting in exchange for growing in sunny conditions away from the competitive woodland. The oak galls that had caught my eye were caused by parasitic wasps. Galls are smooth, dark balls, like large marbles, that protrude from a tree's twigs with a tiny wasp larva growing inside. These ones were caused by a wasp deliberately imported from the Mediterranean 200 years ago because the high tannin content of the galls was important for the leather tanning industry. Oak galls were also used to make ink, with recipes dating back as far as Pliny the Elder in the 1st century AD, and still used as recently as the 19th century, when the United States Postal Service still had an official recipe for the ink that was to be used in all its post office branches. This was an area of expensive homes, tucked into individual padded envelopes of woodland, hidden behind tall gates with security cameras. There were very few visible houses on today's square, apart from a terrace of old cottages along a lane up a narrow hill. A footpath ran down the back, and in one of the gardens I glimpsed dozens of statues of Buddhas, Chinese dragons, and carved lions behind a hedge of Asian bamboo. Bamboo flowers infrequently, though it does so in synchrony and gregariously, meaning that all plants in an area burst into flower at once. 
the flowering interval of Philostachys bambusoides is an astonishing 120 years. We can say this with certainty because Chinese scholars have kept records of the phenomenon for more than a thousand years. I followed a path past an abandoned digger whose flaking blue paint and red rust patches had acquired a natural covering of orange lichen. It created an attractive palette. As I walked deeper into the wood, the air rang out with chainsaws and diggers and there was a strong smell of smoke. Trees were being felled and burnt everywhere to clear space for some new houses. I crossed a busy road to get away from the destruction, whereupon the cat's eyes caught my eye, as they're supposed to do, I guess. Their inventor, Percy Shaw, was a Yorkshireman who enjoyed a pint or two in his Queenbury local, the old dolphin, after work. While negotiating a twisty lane home one foggy night, he was warned by the reflection from a cat's eyes that he was in danger of driving off the edge of the road. Inspired by this, Shaw began tinkering in his spare time. He patented his invention and established a company to sell his cat's eyes. His big break came with a blackout in the Second World War that made driving more treacherous and led to a boost in sales. Today's cat's eyes are used throughout much of the world. To complete Shaw's fame, he even has a Weatherspoons pub named after him. When I was about 18, I gouged a cat's eye from the road in my village and set about trying to turn it into a necklace. Fashion has never been my forte, nor has DIY. I failed even to take the thing apart. Early spring is an exuberant time of the year, filled with sounds of the joy of freedom. Starlings chattered merrily in an ash tree. They have a radiant oil-like iridescence and speckles on their winter plumage, the stars that give the birds their name. We have the charming murmuration collective noun for starlings, but they are also sometimes referred to as a chattering, a scourge, a vulgarity or a filth because of their noisy and messy habits. Starlings are our most talkative birds, with a repertoire of up to 35 songs, plus bonus additional clicking tracks. They are excellent mimics, learning new sounds and then passing them on to their offspring. Henry Mayhew, the founder of Punch magazine, described them as the poor man's parrot on account of their mimicry and plumage. Huge murmurations of starlings such as those at winter dusks on the Somerset levels, are one of the greatest natural spectacles I've seen in Britain, rivalled only by the seabird colonies on the Farne Islands. Samuel Taylor Coleridge once described a scale of murmuration in London that no longer exists. Starlings in vast flights drove along like smoke, mist, or anything misty without volition, some moments glimmering and shivering, dim and shadowy, now thickening, deepening, blackening. Starlings in Winter by the poet Mary Oliver also captures their starry beauty in flight. This wheel of many parts that can rise and spin over and over again, full of gorgeous life. The lanes were filled with daffodils, a sure sign that spring was beginning. Mentioning Coleridge and daffodils so closely together inevitably leads to Wordsworth. In 1795, the men became friends and published lyrical ballads together. 
a volume of poetry said to have ushered in the Romantic Age of Literature. It sold well over the years, and Wordsworth earned money from poetry for the rest of his life. Nobody took much notice of I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud at first, but it became Wordsworth's most famous poem, with its rhythmic language that captures nature's peace. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Personally, I've always disliked the poem, ever since I had to memorise it in junior school, and on another occasion to copy it out laboriously for a handwriting competition that I was never likely to win. But I do like the cheerful optimism of the flowers themselves. They bring colour and hope back to the land before winter has truly passed and before the warm days settle in. Daffodils that come before the swallow dares, as Shakespeare wrote in A Winter's Tale. Daffodils grow across Europe and North Africa. They were first planted in gardens around 300 BC, and the enthusiastic botanist and philosopher Theophrastus described many types in his whopping inquiry into plants. The flowers made their way to Britain with the Romans, who believed the sap contained healing powers, but it actually contains irritant crystals. I followed a footpath lined with yellow daffodils into a green field of winter wheat seedlings, busy with field fairs. I got a buzz as a buzzard launched from a hedge and flew into the woods. His partner took flight from the ground, swerving its bulk into the trees as best it could, for they're built for power, not poise. Buzzards have a four-foot wingspan and weigh up to a kilogram, with fearsome hooked beak and sharp talons. They're plentiful these days, but almost disappeared from our skies in the 1950s following persecution by gamekeepers and pesticide use. Male buzzards fly acrobatic displays to impress potential mates. Their trademark roller coaster move involves flying high, then plummeting, twisting and turning as they fall. Shifting baselines have been a regular and depressing feature of this project, but there are occasional positive examples too. I still get excited when I see a buzzard soaring overhead, even though they are common today. The population has risen fourfold in my lifetime since they received legal protection. We need more baselines heading in the right direction like this. A golf course took up a large proportion of today's square. Pleasant enough, if somewhat artificial and dull. The landscape, I mean, not the game. Although now I come to think about it. I strolled down a footpath that ran alongside the 16th fairway, glancing only idly at an oak tree speckled with lichen. But then I stopped to use the Seek app to identify what I was looking at on the trunk. The app identified rough speckled shield lichen, bushy cartilage lichen, monk's hood lichen and yellow shore lichen. Soon I was drawn in, noticing more and more, so many colours and textures, and falling down the tunnel of fascination. And there I had been thinking this golf course was a bit boring and empty. There was so much to see on this one tree that I'd almost dismissed with a single glance. The more I pay attention, the more I notice. The more I notice, the more I learn. The more I learn, the more I enjoy. The more I enjoy, the more I pay attention. 
This positive feedback loop of learning and loving is what schools dream of generating in the classroom. But in my case, it didn't take hold until I began mooching around my neighbourhood with a camera, a notebook and a handful of apps. On my map, there are no forests free from litter, no hills to raise the heartbeat, no clean rivers to swim in, no ocean with crashing waves, no town bustling with people who enjoy the same things as I do. But the days when I set out to explore, to cycle, walk, photograph, sit and think, were becoming the highlight of my weeks. Out here, I did not notice what I was missing but rather celebrated all that I was finding.